Good evening, church. It's good to be back with you all. I'm happy to be here on this evening, take a couple weeks off. Happy to be back. But before we jump into our sermon tonight, we have a huge announcement, big announcement, okay? That is this. There is a new uh, marriage in the house. Who knows that? I want to invite up Leah and Josh to come up here on the stage. They just got married this weekend. Come on up. So if you, I'm, I, you guys could share your story with people in the back afterwards. Come on up. Josh is uh, our, our worship leader, creative worship leader, director. He is uh, many things to many campuses. And you've been here, Josh. That was a, a low high five. I love that. It's that... You're teaching friends before marriage. That's really important. And uh, they got married this past weekend. And Leah, you've been at the church now for six years, six years. And here's what's really special. It's not just that Josh is on staff here and is doing a phenomenal job in worship and creativity. And Leah is one of our key leaders. Leah served as a deacon for several years. She serves on our vision advisory board and does a lot of other things in the life of the church. But here's what's really cool. They met here. They met here through this community and this church. And so I want to give you guys a moment. If you want to say anything to the church, because, you know, we, we share in this, you know? You know what I mean? Here, here you go. I want to put you on the spot, make you awkward. Like if this could happen to you. you know? Yeah, this could, yeah. <laughs> this could be you, you know? Yeah, yeah, like, you, go. you come to Crossbridge, pay your tithes, you know? Like. <laughs> Find a wife. <laughs> Find a wife, you know? Leah's better at this than I am, I well, it's funny you mention it because I remember about six years ago, I was doing some sort of like mission event and I was standing next to Carter and he was like, Leah, you're going to like find a man in Miami and fall in love and you're going to get married. And I literally went. <laughs> it's called the gift of prophecy. <laughs> I don't know. God was like, LOL. Look at this. Um, but yeah. Just want to say thank you to all of you for being our friends and our family, away from our families. Um, shout out to Sarah Cray. We were friends for oh, like yeah. a year before we dated, and um, we would not have gone on our first date had it not been for Sarah being like, come on, guys, what are you doing? Hey, um, give her a round of applause for so Sarah. So if there's anyone that you should be congratulating, it's her. Um, That's true. And yeah, thanks for all your support. Um, thank you, hopefully, for your prayers and your encouragement. Um, yeah, we're really happy and excited to share this with all of y'all. I love it. Well, hey, let's, let's pray for them as they're one week into marriage. And if you want to extend your hands as we pray together as a church over you guys, we'd love to, to pray for you. God, we thank you for Josh and for Leah, not only for their talents and their time and their treasure, the investment they've made in the life of this church, but just thank you for uh, their marriage. Thank you for calling them together. Uh, Lord, this was in your plans before they ever knew it, before anyone ever knew it. And, uh, Lord, you want to use them as um, not only uh, a blessing to others, but as an example of, uh, of what a relationship looks like that's founded on Christ. And so we just want to thank you for this day of celebration. We want to thank you for their lives. We pray that you would protect them, that you'd go before them, Jesus, that you would guide them and give them clarity and discernment as they navigate marriage together. And, uh, Lord, we want to give you all the honor because this is a great gift that you have given us. That is marriage, and so we want to thank you for that and honor them this evening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. So make sure to congratulate them after the service. 
I'm really excited uh, for you all. So as uh, I said, we're going to jump now into the sermon. If you've been with us this summer, you know that we are doing a new series called Wrestlers or Wanderers and Wrestlers. And we're picking up in episode four. I said last week we wanted a, a big uh, thanks to Pastor David and one of our elders, Phil Nicholas, as well as Pastor Marcus last week for filling in while I was out of town. And uh, it's just been great to kind of refresh and come back and step into the series this evening. We're going through the life of some of the patriarchs of the faith in the book of Genesis. And so if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Genesis chapter 16. If you have the Crossbridge Brickle app, click on the notes icon, follow along. We want you to engage uh, together with us, all of us together in God's word as we move through this passage, Genesis chapter 16 this evening. So the title of the sermon is Pride and Promise, and that is because these are two of the major themes that God is teaching and, and the narrator is developing here in Genesis chapter 16. The, there's an expression that goes with pride that I think almost every single person here in the room is familiar with, and that is this. Pride comes before the fall. Now, maybe you don't know this, but that expression comes from the book of Proverbs, that's where it originated. It's also connected to the very first fall, the great fall in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve, in their pride, ate of the forbidden fruit, and they fell, sin entered the world. So this expression has become infamous in many cultures all over the world, and I think it's because it's prevalent, because it's not just found in stories in the Bible, it's found in our lives. There are many times and many occasions where pride wells up within us and we experience as a result of that a fall of varying levels and degrees depending on the circumstance. This happens for me almost every single time I go to a buffet. Anyone else resonate with that? You go to a buffet and if you're like me, you'd say to yourself, I must eat everything. I must try everything because it's a buffet. So I don't have to pay for individual items. I get to eat all of them. And so what I typically do is I make that a mission and I get several plates and I create the Himalayas through plates and then I eat all of them. And one of the, the things I'll never forget, one of the greatest buffet periods I think in human history was early 2000s, 2001, 2004, Pizza Hut Buffet. You guys know about Pizza Hut Buffet. If you don't, Google it, Okay. Cinestics, pasta, bread rolls, pizza is unbelievable. But if you engage a buffet like me in pride, guess what happens? A great fall. Because you eat so much food, your body starts to attack you because it's angry that you've put way too much food in your body. You need to go to sleep for several days and then wake up. You feel so uncomfortable. Pride comes before the fall. It happens in funny ways, in you know, insignificant ways like a buffet. But it happens also for us in significant ways, ways that cause great conflict and adversity and, and suffering for us. And that's what happens here in Genesis chapter 16. Pride comes before a great fall. Now let me give us a quick recap as we dive into our passage tonight. So here's what's taken place. Genesis chapter 12 is where we started. God comes to Abram. And this is Abram before his name is changed to Abraham and Sarai before her name is changed to Sarah. God comes to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. And he gives Abram this great promise. He's going to be the father of a great nation. He's going to have many offspring. He's going to be placed in a new land. And there he will be a blessing to others and God will bless him. 
It's a profound promise. As we saw last week in Genesis chapter 15, God then instituted a covenant with Abraham to deepen that promise to let Abram know that God was going to uphold his commitment to Abram and Sarai. And these, these promises were sure because God was going to carry them. He was taking the responsibility. This was meant to give great peace and hope and resilience to Abram and Sarai when times got difficult. Why? Because the promises that God has given to them are contingent upon God upholding them, and he always is faithful. So now we are in Genesis chapter 16. This is what's happened so far, and we find in Genesis chapter 16, which takes place 10 years after Genesis 12. So when God first gives the promise to Abram and to Sarai, 10 years later, we find this instance. Pride already comes into play. Here's what our passage this evening says, starting in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. This is the word of the Lord. So here, as I said, this takes place 10 years later after Genesis chapter 12. God's given these great promises to Abram and to Sarai. And at this point, Sarai is about 75 years old. And she makes this statement in verse 2, which is significant. She says that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Most scholars believe that what she's referring to is that she's post-menopause. So she's naturally not able to conceive. And she feels as if God has allowed her to get this far where she's not able to have children. And so it's time for her to take matters into her own hands. God has prevented me from having children. And so I'm going to do something about it. So they have this great promise. They're going to have these offspring. They're going to be parents of a great nation. But God is preventing her for some reason, she doesn't understand, from having children. And so she has an idea. Here's what we're going to do, Abram. We're going to take Hagar my Egyptian maidservant that we, that joined our family in Egypt, and I'm going to give her to you so you can conceive a child with her. She will be a surrogate mother, and then that is how we will get this child a promise. I can't have kids. God has not allowed it. He's prevented me, so we will use Hagar as a surrogate mother. Now, this is actually a common practice in many cultures during this time period, but it is not what God told Abram and Sarai. He promised them that they would have a child, that they would be parents of offspring. But after 10 years, Sarai is done with waiting. I'm done with waiting. 
So she takes matters in her own hand. She creates her own scheme. She's going to figure out how to make this promise go forward one way or another. And so she gives Hagar to Abram. And what is Abram's response? He goes along with it. He's passive. He doesn't fight. He doesn't say anything. It's very interesting here. In this passage where you see this pride well up in Sarai, and we see in Abram too, the narrator is wanting you to connect this story in Genesis chapter 16 to another story that's taken place previously. And that is in Genesis chapter 3, the very first instance of pride creating a great fall. Here's how it's connected. So in Genesis chapter 16, there's a progression of verses that's really important. It says that Sarai saw Hagar. She took her and gave her to her husband. What does Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 say? Eve saw the fruit, thought it was good. She took it and she gave it to her husband. It's the exact same progression of verbs. And when Abram receives this invitation, this idea from Sarai who saw and took and gave, what does he do? He goes along with it. He's passive. And in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve takes the fruit and gives it to her husband, what does Adam do? He goes along with it. He's passive. He partakes of the plan. You see, the reason that the narrator is developing this is because he wants, he wants to punctuate the point that pride comes before the fall, and he wants you to see Sarai's foolishness and Abram's passivity. Because what results from this pride as they try to take God's plans into their own hands because they're tired of waiting is that it brings about a great fall in their family. It brings about great destruction to their home. Martin Luther, the German reformer, he spoke about this expression that St. Augustine uh, coined, which is incurvitus in se. That means that we as human beings are curved in on oneself. So Augustine speaks about this, and Luther, Martin Luther, further develops that we as human beings, because of our sin, our natural inclination is to curve in on ourselves. In fact, the classic imagery of this expression is someone who is a hunchback. And Martin Luther begins to expound this, and he speaks about this nature that we have in curvatus in say, that we're curved in on ourselves, and he has this quote. Listen to this. He says, Our nature, by the corruption of the first sin, being so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them, or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts, but it also fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. You see, this is seen both in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are so curved in on themselves that they use God for their own sake. They use the best gifts of God because they believe it's good and they take and they eat, they take matters into their own hands because they're curved in on themselves. 
Here in Genesis chapter 16, the same exact thing happens. Sarai and Abram take matters into their own hands. They're curved in on themselves. They're going to figure it out one way or another because their gaze is upon themselves. They're curved in. And this actually is developed even in our current culture. There, there was a, a New Yorker magazine that came out in 2015. Check out this picture. You see that? It's a picture of a man curved in on himself looking at his phone. And the article talks about how in our society, we have become curved in on ourselves. References in Curvatus and Say that we have taken this little device that is in our pocket and we look to it to satisfy all of our individual cravings and desires. And so what it's creating in us is this curving into ourselves, this selfishness, this hyper-individualism that causes us to think only about ourselves and to use even your phone as a gateway or the means to the end of fulfilling your desires. You see, before we read a passage like Genesis chapter 16 and we see Abram and Sarai and they can't even wait 10 years, they get impatient, they take matters into their own hands, they're curved in on themselves, they're full of pride and create this great fall in their family. Before we look on them with judgment, it's really important for us to remember that we're the same way. We do the same thing. We think about ourselves, we take matters into our own hands, we will use the best gifts of God for our own benefit, we think we know what is good, and we'll use everything to reach that end, even God we will use to develop what we think is good, to create the generation of promises in our lives. This happens for them, Abram and Sarai, it happened with Adam and Eve, and it happens with you and me. And one of the questions that we have to deal with is, why is this our nature, right? It, it's really simple to say that it's because of sin. Because of sin, we're broken, so we're curved in on ourselves. We're thinking about ourselves. We take matters into our own hands. That's true, but let's develop it a little bit further. Why does this happen time and time again? Because here's the truth. When you're curved in on yourself, what it generates is pride, so you want to know why pride begins to creep up in your life. It's because your gaze is on yourself. You're looking at yourself. You're focusing on yourself and all of your cravings and desires. And that focus creates pride, which generates a fall. So why is this our inclination? Why does pride creep up? It's because of our gaze. It's because of where we're looking, what we're focusing on, what has our attention what we give most thought to and attention to, oftentimes it's ourself. You see, it's not by accident that all throughout Scripture, God commands our gaze. He is constantly commanding where you fix your eyes, what has your attention, what you focus on, what you look to for help and strength. I want to read just a few passages. I, we could be reading these all night, but let me just read a few. Isaiah 40, verse 26. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens who created all these. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills, for where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and earth. Luke 21. Stand up and lift your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Psalm 105, look to the Lord and his strength, seek his face always. Hebrews 12, 2, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. All throughout the Bible, 
God is commanding your eyes, your gaze, what has your attention, what you look to. It's as if the Bible is saying to you and to me, look up. It straightens your soul. We're curved in on ourselves. We're focusing on ourselves. And God is commanding you to take your gaze away from yourself and to look up to him. That is where your help comes from. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, your redemption. Fix your eyes up on him. Oftentimes, though, our gaze is inward, as we see here in the passage with Abram and Sarai, on themselves. And it creates this great dysfunction, this great fall in their household. But it's not only true for them. Remember, there's three main characters here, Abram and Sarai, connected here to Adam and Eve, and that great fall, the pride that's generated, but also Hagar. So Hagar is, is brought into this plan to be the surrogate mother. In verse 4, it says that she conceives a child with Abram, and then something happens to her. Something changes within her. As she looks in on herself and she recognizes that she has now conceived a child with Abram, she looks at Sarai and looks at her, it says in in the Hebrew, with contempt. But the actual word is that she curses her. So as she now has Abram's child, she looks at Sarai, his wife, and views her as less than. She begins to curse her. Because she can't conceive a child, and she has a child, so she is superior. Pride begins to well up in her because she has this baby. Sarai doesn't. And what does Sarai do? As this takes place, she acts like Eve again, and she goes and she blames her husband. She goes to Adam. Hey, this is your fault. I don't know what happened. I gave her to you, and now all of a sudden, she's cursing me. She's looking at me with contempt. What did you do? Why did you allow this? And then what does Abram do? He acts just like Adam. He shrugs off all responsibility. He says, this is your mess. This was your plan. This was your idea. You fix it. And then so she goes, it says, to Hagar, and she is harsh and overbearing with her, and Hagar flees And runs out to the wilderness. What a mess. (laughs) All because of pride. Pride in Sarai. Pride in Abram. Pride in Hagar. Which creates this great fall. As Hagar is fleeing in the wilderness. She's really going through a desert. She's making her way back to Egypt. It says that she stops at a spring. Which is always the symbol in the desert of life and hope. So she stops at a spring as she's running away and fleeing, and the angel of the Lord shows up to meet her and commands her to go back. God comes to her at this spring as she's fleeing and tells her to go back. Now, that had to have been shocking, right? She's just been treated poorly by Sarai. She's run away from a mess, a dysfunctional family, and God is telling her to go back. Why? Why is God telling her to go back? You you could think of maybe a, a, a few possible things. One, you could think, okay, maybe it's because it's not only her child. It's also Abram's, and he should have the opportunity to be a present father. That's, that's a viable idea. Secondly, 
Maybe it's because running away from your problems never solves anything. And you need to face conflict. You need to step back into adversity and try to reconcile because running away is going to solve nothing. I think that's fair, too. But the text actually pulls out a third thing, which is quite shocking in the text. And that is this, that though pride comes before the fall, that's very clearly taught here in this passage, the second lesson is that promise follows the fall. You see, God is calling Hagar back because he has a great promise for her, and she needs to return. But God has not only a great promise for Hagar, but also for Abram and Sarai. See, as we're focusing here on pride coming before the fall, and we are people that are curved in on ourselves, and what that generates is pride, and that pride creates a fall in our life, in relationships, and family, and career, and all these different places, the second lesson is that after a fall, God comes with a promise. You see, Abram and Sarai... After this instance, they have an encounter with God, or Abram does, in Genesis chapter 17. Here's here's what does not happen, okay? God does not come to Abram after this mess that has taken place in his family and say, hey, listen, I came to you 10 years ago with, like, the greatest promise ever. Father of a great nation, new land, an inheritance, you're going to be a blessing to others, I'm going to bless you. And you couldn't wait 10 years and you messed it up like this? I mean, your family's dysfunctional. Your behavior is destructive. You're passive. You're acting just like Adam. And your wife is acting just like Eve. You know what? I'm going to find a new family. (laughs) Like, I'm done. You guys sort that out. I'll go find somebody else to be the patriarch of the faith. Doesn't do that. In Genesis chapter 17, God comes to Abram. And he further establishes his covenant with him. Isn't that profound? You have to feel how Sarai and Abram had to have felt. They had to have waken up to the fact that they have caused a mess because of their pride. And yet after that failure, God comes to them with a promise again. He further establishes his promise. He wants them to know that his promises to them are not dependent upon their behavior. That no amount of destructive behavior, no amount of dysfunction is going to cause God to abandon his promises to them. He's going to uphold them. He's going to stay committed. He's going to be faithful to every promise he's given them. This is such good news, friends, because what it reveals to you is who God is. God is a God of promises, and he's a God of grace, not performance. God does not look at you, and he says, you know what? You've had a really bad month, and I had some great blessings and some great promises for you, but you are dysfunctional, and your behavior is destructive, so I'm going to find somebody else to give those promises to. That is not how God operates. God is a God of grace. When he gives you promises, they are final. He carries them forward. He will not depart from them. You see, after us reading God's word together, we're going to partake of the new covenant meal, communion. 
symbolizing the breaking of Jesus' body and the shedding of his blood so that you and me could be children of the promise, that we could be a part of this new covenant. And God has promised that he is going to carry you forward regardless of how good of a week you had or how good of a year you had morally. His promises are sure. They are final. He will carry them. The, the book of Proverbs has this really profound quote. In, in Proverbs 24, it says that the righteous falls seven times and rises again. The, the language is kind of speaking of this cycle where the righteous person will fall. They will fail, but they get back up. Now, is that because they're just spiritually strong and they're mature and they're holy and so they just recognize their mistake and they got up and they fixed it, they corrected it, and now they're going to do better? That's not at all why. See, when you look at the whole counsel of Scripture, it's because the righteous person understands something about God. They understand that if they confess their sins, God is faithful and just to forgive they understand that because they are part of the covenant that God has promised to uphold, that they should not fear, they should not be dismayed, as Isaiah says, that God will strengthen them. He will uphold them, and he will raise up the righteous with his right hand. Notice in all of this language, all of the action, the responsibility is on God. He will strengthen. He will uphold. He will be our help. He will raise up the righteous. See, the righteous fall, but they rise because they understand the nature of God, that he is a God of grace, he is a God that carries us forward with, our, with the promises that he has given, and it is not dependent upon your behavior. I hope that is good news for somebody. If you had a rough week, you had a rough month, you had a rough year, that you're like, you know what, God, thank you that your promises and your blessings that you have bestowed upon me that promise that you're going to work everything for good in my life is not dependent upon how good I am but it's because you're good to me and he reinforces that with Abram and Sarai after this great fall a massive dysfunction in their family but maybe you resonate with Hagar maybe you feel a lot like her because Abram and Sarai were very much in you know, God is establishing this covenant with them. There's these profound promises given to them. They've already seen God blessing them in different ways. They're kind of part of the in crowd. Hagar has to feel like the outsider. I think that's probably why she ran. She doesn't feel a part of the family fully. She's running from that dysfunction, but she's also running from God. And God chases her down and meets her at that spring as she's departing and heading back to a place of safety, which was Egypt for her. And when God comes to her as she's running away, he gives her not some cold command just to go back, like, Hagar, you got to go back because that's also Abram's child and, and he needs the right to be present. He comes to her with a promise. After her failure, after the pride in her life, here's what he says to her in verse 10. The angel of the Lord said to her, Hagar, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Later, it's further established that God is also going to protect the offspring of Hagar. Here's the promise. God comes to her at this spring symbolizing life and hope and he commands her to go back, but he says, listen, I want you to understand that I empathize with you. Verse 11 says that God listened to her affliction. 
See, God listens to the oppressed and the hurting and those that are crying out in pain and crushed and broken in spirit. And he comes to her in the midst of that and he gives her a promise that she's going to be the mother of a great nation that God will protect. Can you imagine how she must have felt? In fact, she responds to this promise with worship. She marvels that God saw her and God heard her cries. See, if you resonate with Hagar, you feel like an outcast. You feel like an outcast in the church, or maybe you feel like an outsider to God. And maybe your natural reaction when pride wells up in your life because you're curved in on yourself and it generates a fall, your natural reaction is to run out of shame, out of fear. You run away from God, you run away from people, you hide. Great, it's great news that God hears. He sees. He hears your cries. He sees your affliction. He hears those prayer requests that you've been praying year over year over year, and you're like, God, are you listening? He hears you. In fact, uh, Hagar, the child that she's conceived is named Ishmael. Do you know what Ishmael's name means? God hears. God hears. He hears you. He heard her. And here in this passage, Hagar is given one of the most profound opportunities and privileges in all of Scripture. She is the only person, the only person that confers a name on God. She gives God a name. She says, God, you are a God of seeing. Only instance in the Bible when a human being gives a name to God. Hagar has that privilege. See, God saw her and listened to her in her affliction, in her pain, in her running away, and he met her with a promise. Abram and Sarai, who were definitely part of the insiders, God also met them with a promise in Genesis chapter 17. Because pride comes before the fall, but promise follows the fall every time. God hears you. He sees you. He listens to you. Your requests and your needs are not floating out in thin air. He is present, and he cares, and he listens, and he is carrying forward the promises that he's given to you, even when you can't see it. Here's the problem for us, is I think that sometimes we hear this, that God hears us, and he sees us, and he cares for us, and we're valuable to God. And if you've been at church for any amount of time, you've probably heard that message so many times but we struggle to believe it because we've been praying something for years and there's been no movement. We look in our life and we see certain things that we really believe that we need and we desire so deeply and they're not prevalent and we don't feel like we have the right things in our life to flourish. And we feel like, God, are you listening? Do you care? I mean, did I do something? Feel as if we're not valuable to God. I want you to know you're valuable to God, and I want to explain it like this. I have a Seiko watch right here, okay? I know. Don't be jealous. But after the service, I'm going to sell this watch for $50,000. So if you want to buy it, let me know. It's on sale, okay? It's not worth $500, but I'm selling it for $50. It's not even worth $100, probably, but I'm selling it for $50. I actually, every single time I put it on, I have to adjust the, it doesn't keep time, so it's one of the problems of this beautiful watch. But I'm selling it for $50,000. 
no one's going to buy it. Right? No one in the world would buy this watch for $50,000. You can't even keep time. Why? Because it's not worth that. But how do you determine worth? See, value and worth is determined by what somebody will pay for it. See, if, if someone paid $50,000 for this watch for some reason, it would be worth $50,000. But nobody will, so it's not. Worth and value is determined by what somebody will pay for something. And when you spend your money to purchase something that is valuable, what do you do with that thing? You care for it. You protect it. You maintain it. As an example, maybe you have been saving up to invest in art. Art Basel's coming up in December. You're like, I'm going to get a really nice painting. Been saving. So you go and you find some painting, and you, it just spoke to you. You know, you, just, you saw it, the colors were all mixing together, but it spoke to your soul, and you invested in it. Now, when you take that painting home, you're going to do a few things. Because you spent a lot of money, now it's very valuable to you, so you want to care for it. You're going to put it in a nice frame. You're going to mount it on a very secure mount on your wall, not in the drywall, but on the frame of the house or the apartment. You're going to make sure that it's not mounted in direct sunlight because you don't want the painting to fade. You're going to make sure that there's a humidor in your house because nice art should never be above 55% of humidity. So in Miami, you need 10 humidifiers, okay? 10. You're going to make sure nothing's there that's going to knock into it. You're going to dust it often so that dust doesn't get into the crevices of the frame and creep into the art. You're going to do everything you can to make sure that you protect that painting because it's so valuable to you because it came at a great cost. Sometimes I think that we don't believe deeply that we're valuable to God because we don't see God caring for us in the way that we would imagine he should if we were as valuable as we see scripture claim. I feel like, God, okay, maybe I'm a painting in your house, but I feel like you put me in direct sunlight. Like, I'm fading. Or, God, okay, maybe I'm a painting, but you opened the doors and turned off the humidifier, and I'm withering. Like, I, I believe maybe I'm part of, of the family, but I don't believe that I really matter to you. I don't believe that you're listening to me. I don't believe that I'm valuable to you. I don't believe that you care because I don't have the right things in my life that I believe that I need. And I can tell you that your finite mind cannot understand the infinite plans of God. And maybe that can give you some comfort that time for you and God is very different. And sometimes in life, you think something is so good and you have to have it. And if you give a little bit of time, you look back and you're like, God, thank you for not giving me that thing. That would have been tragic. But it's hard in the moment, which causes us to curve in on ourselves and take matters into our own hands, just like Abram and Sarai, who are like, God, we've been waiting 10 years. You're preventing us from having kids. So we're going to figure it out. We're withering. We're fading. Didn't feel valuable to God. Here, I, I want you to hear this. Every single time that you think in life that you are not valuable to God, that he doesn't care, he's not listening, here's how you know that God hears you and that he sees you. It's because he paid the greatest cost for you. He paid the cost of his eternal son. 
God the Father sent Jesus Christ the Son to give his life for you, to take your sin and your shame and your guilt, to be separated from the Father on the cross, and to be buried for you. God didn't have to, but he did because he loves you and he values you and he invites you to be a full citizen in his family. He has given you all of the promises, not only in this life, but eternally. He values you because he paid the greatest cost for you. There is no greater cost, and yet he paid it. So whenever you think, I don't know, God, if, if you care about me. Are you listening to me? Why aren't you responding to me in the way that I, I think you need to? Remember that he paid the greatest cost for you, so you have to be valuable to him, or else he never would have paid the cost. He loves you. He sees you. He hears you. And every single time that you fail or you fall because of pride often, he wants to come back with a promise. He wants to reestablish that promise with you because he's a God of grace and not performance. Amen? Will you pray with me? God, we come before you tonight, and we just want to thank you for who you are. We want to confess who we are. We are people that are curved in on ourselves time and time again. We see pride creep up many times, and it creates and results in a fall, a failure. God, I pray that you would straighten our soul, that you would fix our gaze upon you, that we would look to you, Jesus, that we would fix our eyes upon you, God, that we would see the great cost that you paid for our sake, for our life and our redemption, our eternity. How could you not value us? Help us to rest in times of difficulty that you are in control, that you are infinite and we are finite. Help us to gain perspective and a sound mind and clear thinking on who you are and who we are, that we are the benefactor of the promises that you have freely given to us by your grace, not because we have earned them, but because you have desired to give them out of the abundance of love that you have for us. Would that give us hope? Would that generate peace in our lives? Would that give us perspective? And I, I pray, God, for any of us that feel like Hagar, we feel like an outsider. Uh, maybe our natural reaction is to run from you, is to run from others. Would you speak to anyone's soul tonight that feels like that, that you see them, God? Holy Spirit, would you well up in their heart right now this belief and this understanding that you're near and that you listen, that you are a God of seeing. I pray this all in Jesus' name.